You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this afternoon, in which Lord's Day 40, covering the Sixth Commandment, will once again have our attention. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Romans chapter 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. You want to be free from fear of the one in authority, then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And we'll turn, secondly, to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll read there the verses 1 through 7. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Our text this afternoon is the word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Concerning the sixth commandment. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I'm not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I'm not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire for revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbors as as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we confess in Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism 
In question answer 105, the last line, therefore also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. So the question that we're going to consider this afternoon is how do we as God's people fulfill our responsibility with respect to the government? It's clear that you shall not murder. It's also clear that you shall love. But what about situations where murder is happening and where that relates with the government's responsibility to prevent and to punish murder? What about where love is being misapplied, even with our governing authorities? Do we as God's people have a responsibility? You might say simply, what does this last line in question and answer 105 have to do with us? Now, two weeks ago, we had a sermon on this same commandment. And we looked at the biblical groundwork and background for the Sixth Commandment. The answer to, okay, we know why we ought not to kill, but why ought we not to kill our fellow humans? What's so special about them that makes murder so wrong? And we saw there that it has to do with the nature of man. It has to do with man as God has created him. And her. Mankind, the climax of creation, was created in the image of God. And that has many implications for us, not the least of which is that all humans have dignity and honor by the very virtue of their being humans. They have dignity and honor. God has created them with it. Of course they do. They were created, we were created by God to reflect him and to do his work in this world. Now, of course, the fall into sin has distorted this image, but the honor and dignity of each human being still remains. That's why it was a horrible crime when Cain killed Abel. And that's why Abel's blood called out to God for justice. There was something special about his blood. There was something special about his life. And that's why after the flood, God commanded that no man's blood could be shed. And that if it was, the killer's own blood ought to be shed as punishment for his sin. And so it's this rule, that that rule from Genesis 9, where the Lord said, Do not kill another man because he's made in the image of God. But if he does kill, then you need to take his life. This introduces us into the concept of governing authorities and the question of whose responsibility is it to take the life of that murderer? And what are the parameters of that responsibility? And so as we consider God's word in this respect this afternoon, we will consider that the government, in fact, bears the sword. The government bears the sword. And so there's an interplay of Authority and responsibility between the government and God. God gives authority to the government. The government has responsibility toward God to carry out this responsibility. But we'll also see that as God's people, we have a responsibility with respect to the government. The ones whom God has put an authority over us. And finally, we'll consider that we have a responsibility not only toward government, 
but toward God. As we serve God in this world, it has an effect on how we live and how we act toward the governing authorities that God has put over us. So the authority and the responsibility of punishing, uh, preventing and punishing murder belongs rightfully to the governing authority of the people or what we might simply call the government. In the Old Covenant, God prescribed this delegated authority through the institutions of, of family, of elders, of city of refuge. But it wasn't simply an Old Covenant reality that the governing authorities were to put to death and to prevent uh, murder. But even in the New Covenant, in the new administration of God's covenant, even where believers lived under heathen rulers who did not worship the true God, that basic authority and responsibility was still there. Paul writes to the Romans, writes to the believers in Rome, where there is a pagan emperor, a pagan king, and says, your king, your emperor, your government has the responsibility to punish evil, to put to death murderers, and to uphold what is good. Government is an institution of God. Government derives its authority from the triune God in heaven above. That's already been covered in part in the Catechism's treatment of the fifth commandment. But there's more, of course, in Scripture as well. The Apostle Paul, as I just mentioned, wrote to the Romans, the group that lived in the great city of the emperor, and acknowledged the emperor's right to rule. He said, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. And there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He couldn't be more clear. And the Apostle Peter as well, writing not to the Christians in Rome, but in Asia Minor, writes this in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as supreme authority. And he goes on. So the government is an authority established by God. And this also comes through in other places. For example, when the Apostle Paul tells believers to respect and also to pray for their governing authorities. In Titus 3, he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good. And in 1 Timothy 2, he says, you need to pray. When you gather together for worship, then... 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that prayers requests, uh, that requests prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, it is worth noting, again, that the Roman government, and also the government in Asia Minor, which was under the Roman government, but would have had a provincial governor, was anything but a Christian government. In both Rome and Asia Minor, in fact, Christians faced persecution because of their faith. Paul was likely writing to the Romans during the time of Nero, and Nero was not the empire's greatest leader, nor the most just one. Paul and Peter themselves would both lose their lives directly under this government 
to whom they said the Christians were to obey and respect because they recognized the authority that that government had and that that authority had come from God. The government itself may not recognize God, but it doesn't change the fact that their authority is given to them from the Father in heaven. And the government's specific responsibility is to avenge evil and to encourage good. Paul wrote in Romans 13, Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. He is God's servant to do you good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He's God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. As well, in 1 Peter 2, in the section where he continued, Peter said, uh, Submit to the king as supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. And so the government bears authority from God to punish those who do wrong. And this task specifically includes punishing murder. And that with the taking of the murderer's life. That's quite clear from what Paul says when he writes to the Romans, when he says that the government bears the sword. The sword. What's the purpose of a sword? It's for the taking of life. That's what you do. With a sword. And that's consistent, of course, with the revelation of God in the Old Testament with the life for a life principle that God had given. And Paul had a background in that Old Testament. He would have understood that it's legitimate for the government to punish and avenge an unlawful killing by taking the murderer's life. Of course, the government's role is not simply to prevent murder, but to bring punishment on all wrongdoers. And so the phrase bearing the sword has to do with the ending of life of murderers, but also everything underneath. So all government, regardless of type, size, age, whatever, since it is, it has God given authority, also has God given responsibility with respect to those over whom they rule. Now how, you might ask, is our, gov- our, our governing authorities doing in this respect? They have this responsibility. Are they upholding it? Well, we must say at the outset that we have much to be thankful for. Much to be thankful for. Overall, we as God's people experience many blessings under our governing authorities, many blessings under God who has instituted them. We have a consistent method of government. We have many checks and balances in place. Murderers are not tolerated. There is a certain standard of justice. And we ought to acknowledge this blessing because there are many places in the world where the sort of things that we might even take for granted simply do not exist. Where the standard of justice that is applied is far worse or far more random. And we... We can be thankful for these things. Now, some might disagree. Some people are convinced that our government is totally corrupt. But reality would say that this is not true. We do not live in Hitler's Europe. We don't live in Mao's China. We don't live in Mugabe's Zimbabwe, uh, in Zimbabwe or Kim's 
North Korea. And yet, we also need to acknowledge that and also understanding the value of human life and the responsibility of our government, we also need to acknowledge that our hearts are saddened, where we see that justice is not being served and where the sword is being held back and misapplied. Now, one area has to do with the punishment of murder itself. Increasingly, the language of justice in our country is about rehabilitation rather than retribution. Rehabilitation rather than retribution. Prisons are then places where troubled people go to be rewired for productive lives and sentences. And sentences are based on what will be good for the person in the future. But the Bible is very clear about punishment and retribution, and that is a part of properly applied justice. A sentence for a murderer, or for any criminal for that matter, is not so much about what's going to happen in the future, but it's more about what they've done in the past, and about justice being applied for what they've done. It's not about what you will do in the future, it's what you've already done. And this also then has bearing on the ultimate or capital punishment. People would say today, you can't rehabilitate a dead man. And so why would you put a murderer to death? Well, no, you cannot rehabilitate a dead person, but you cannot resurrect the life that that person has already taken. Apart, of course, from the work and timing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, the biblical guidelines of a life for a life, under the right circumstances, with the right parameters in place, that is, capital punishment is a good standard to uphold. But that standard is not being upheld in our country today. What are even more troubling are the situations where the most vulnerable image bearers are being not only protected by our government, but their murder is being callously allowed. Of course, we recognize this in the current state of abortion in our country. This is where we recognize a massive injustice being carried out, precisely where our government has the dual responsibility of protecting those who are weak and most vulnerable, and also of applying justice to murder, protecting human life, is where our government supports those who kill, ignores the human life of the children that are killed, and crushes the vulnerable. It makes our hearts very sad to recognize this. And we recognize the injustice that is being perpetrated by our government. It's not only abortion where we see this, but increasingly, it seems as in in the case of euthanasia, of putting to end the lives of those who are old or weak or frail, that's the, that also we are losing a sense of the dignity and honor of life there as well. Recently, the BC Supreme Court ruled in favor of allowing a woman, Gloria Taylor, to have someone assist in her killing of herself and to do that legally. Now, thankfully, our federal government has appealed this decision, but increasingly this door is being forced open 
by those in places of power, and also by the mindset of our fellow Canadians. Our government, as all governments around this world, has the responsibility to prevent murder, to protect life, and to uphold justice. And in many sad circumstances, brothers and sisters, this is not happening. But we need to move on to consider then, what's our responsibility with respect to our government, particularly where we see them working at odds with what God reveals in his word? And what we understand about the nature of justice. If there are responsibilities of the government, what place do we as church and we as Christians have with respect to the government? You might say, well, if the authorities have the, if the authorities, the government has authority and responsibility, then that leaves us out. Maybe the church should just focus on better things like evangelism rather than trying to do the government work, government's work for them. Or you might say, if the government is misusing their authority and responsibility, then we as church are called to act and to rebel. We're called to revolution because of the misuse of authority and responsibility that our government is showing. And so what is the church called to do? Well, first of all, we must remember our calling to respect our government and to obey. We need to appreciate in the first place that we are not called to revolution. And again, I would remind you of the situation under which Peter and Paul wrote to the Christians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When they urged the Romans and the saints in Asia Minor and the people in Ephesus through Timothy to recognize and appreciate their rulers, they were speaking, they were not speaking about King Jesus or King Solomon or King David. They weren't speaking about a perfect or even a very good ruler. They were talking about pagan rulers who left much to be desired in the way that they ruled. They were talking about systems built on false religion and increasingly human worship. They were dealing with kings who legalized infanticide, who punished Christians, etc. And yet, even about them, they could say they are God's ministers. That's what they were called. They were called God's ministers sent to do good. And so certainly we can recognize the good in our governing authorities, respect them, and thank God for them. But beyond this, we as God's people do have responsibility respectfully, obediently, we have a responsibility. In the first place, we have the responsibility as church in this country to prophetically speak the word of God. One of the things about the prophets, especially of the Old Testament, is that they weren't, first of all, focused about on what kind of reception their message was going to get. Uh, Most of all, uh, most of the time, their message was rejected. Sometimes they were punished and sometimes they were even put to death because of the message that they spoke to the people. And so when we speak the word of God to our culture, our first concern is not how that message is going to be received. Our first concern is on is whether this message is the message that God has for this world. Is this the word of God? Is this the truth? And if it is, then we ought to speak it prophetically prophetically. And speak it boldly. 
Yes, the prophets were focused on bringing the word of God to bear on their times, on their cultures, and on their neighbors. John the Baptist was so bold as to chide Herod for his sins. Daniel called the emperor to humble himself and to acknowledge God's rule. We must speak prophetically, and we must speak so as to be heard, not ashamed of what God's word says. So our first calling then, underneath the general calling to be respectful, is to speak prophetically. But our calling does not end there. We also have a responsibility of fighting against sin and evil. We have a prophetic calling in this world. We also have a kingly calling in this world. And oftentimes this calls for not just the blunt application of truth, but also the careful and tactful forward movement that a king would use in battle. It involves strategy and diplomacy and policy. Is it enough, we must ask ourselves, simply to shout at the government and to tell them what they are doing wrong? Is that the only, and is that the most effective way of driving back evil and upholding justice? The justice that God's word teaches us about. We need to ask ourselves, will shouting at the government save real human lives and protect Real human lives. In the fight against sin and evil, we don't give up our prophetic calling, but we add to it the kingly calling of fighting evil amidst the muck of life, amidst situations which are not ideal, but in which we are called to work. And so this means then, as we speak the word of God to the government, also assisting the government in its task. It means providing real and tangible solutions to our leaders to help them. It means being engaged in politics wherever we can be effective. Voting, of course, being the bare minimum. We don't all have the same gifts or opportunities, but certainly as God's people, we have many gifts and many opportunities with which to serve. To join the fight, driving back sin and evil at the political and judicial level. So we have a prophetic calling. We have a kingly calling. We also, thirdly, have a priestly calling. The priestly calling of caring for those who are weak and vulnerable, of protecting lives. Are we not called, brothers and sisters, to love our neighbor? And as the Lord Jesus would teach us, our neighbor is is precisely the person who we may not expect to be our neighbor. Yes, that includes unborn children but it also includes their often troubled mothers. Yes, this includes the most vulnerable, elderly, and chronically ill, but it also includes those who are lonely, who are feeling abandoned, and who are increasingly being left behind by a culture that does not recognize their worth. As the church, we have a tremendous opportunity to love, to show the love of God as we care for those who are in troubled situations. And so we don't all have to be members of parliament. We don't all have to be lawyers, political insiders, or political science majors. But we are all called to be prophets, 
kings and priests. Because we have an anointing by Jesus Christ. That's because we serve our Lord Jesus Christ, who has not taken the title simply of king of the church or simply of ruler over God's people or simply of savior of a privileged few. No, we serve Jesus Christ, who's the king of kings, who's the ruler of all nations and who's the savior of the world. In recognizing our responsibility toward the governing authorities, we realize that our responsibility has ultimately not to do with our governing authorities, but it has to do with our responsibility toward God. Our calling is those who are united with Jesus Christ and thus share in his anointing. So our responsibilities toward government don't only involve interacting with our MP standing on the roadside with a sign, rubbing elder, uh, rubbing elbows with the local authorities, writing letters to the newspapers, etc., all good things. But our responsibilities start at our life of faith before God. That is, our responsibility begins with our life of prayer. It ought not to miss our attention this afternoon, that when several times when Paul is speaking about the responsibility of the church with respect to the authorities, he calls on God's people to pray for them. We ought to pray as church, as believers, to pray for our governing authorities. Yes, pray about them. Pray that their hearts would change, that their minds would be convinced, that their souls would be stirred by the word of God and by his spirit. But more than that, or included with that, pray for them. Their ministers, their God's ministers for good. Pray for their health. Pray for their well-being. Pray for their lives. Pray for their families. Pray that they might be able to do their work in such a way as they can do it well. In this simple gesture, we acknowledge the fact that God is supreme and powerful, but that at the same time, God uses means. And the means by which he upholds justice and extends love and care to people in this world is through the institution of government. And so we pray. Prayer is the most important part of thankfulness. It's where we begin, but it's not the only part. That's why we do have a calling to work for the good of our neighbor. Faith works itself out in love. And love for our neighbor certainly involves doing what we can to protect lives, to prevent murder, and to to encourage good. And finally, but not as an asterisk or as an appendix to what we've been saying, but as the climax of our responsibility, we bear our calling toward government, the governing authorities because of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. The good news that Jesus Christ has died and arisen again is the fulfillment of the law. It's the manifestation of supreme cosmic justice. It's the source of all love. Yes, let's bring it closer to home. The gospel of Jesus Christ has saved us. Jesus Christ has redeemed us from a life of sin 
and has called us into his kingdom as king of the whole world. We join his kingdom. Therefore, in our politics as well, we must serve him because we have a king. We've been redeemed into his kingdom to serve under him. And he calls us then to serve with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. But at the same time, we don't put our trust in government, in the rule of law, or in any human institution of power. We put our trust in Jesus Christ. We serve government with heart, soul, and mind because of Jesus Christ, yet not trusting them, but trusting him. We serve because we have an almighty king, but we rest because we have an almighty savior who is Jesus Christ, the Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.